turn once again, if you would, to Romans 8. Romans 8. As we just sung a song that served us so well to really glory in Christ. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand. Jesus is glorious and no one can separate us from his love if we're in Christ. That's what Romans 8 is all about. And that's one of the reasons that that song is just so helpful to kind of plow the ground of our hearts as we enter into Romans 8 again. And we're about to come to one of the greatest, prom- one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. In fact, probably the greatest promise in all of Romans as we sort of have been ascending the mountaintop over the weeks. This is, we're, we're getting to apex time. And I just, I need God's help to unfold this in a way that would honor Him and the Spirit would minister to us because we, we just, we need to be gripped by this. And so let's come before the Lord together and really Ask him to do a work here. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you've given us rich and beautiful and amazing promises like Romans 8, 28, that are medicine to a weary soul. They are healing balm to our hearts. They our rock beneath our feet. Lord, we just thank you that you are at work in everything, in the lives of your people, in the lives of your blood-bought children. You're at work in all things for good. And we thank you, Lord, that that is a promise in Scripture because we often feel just faltering in this world. We often feel discouraged and we often need to be reminded of these glorious truths and let them wash over our souls. They're not simplistic truths. They are not without the realities of living in a fallen world in which we live, but they are deeply needed as the people of God. And you have revealed it because it is good for us and because it is uh, something, Lord God, that you are working out in our lives. It's playing out writ large in our life that you are good and you work your glorious good purposes out in the lives of your people and even when we can't see it. So Father, would your spirit bless this time? Would you encourage us and would you open the doors of our hearts to receive all that you have in your word? And may you awaken us afresh to some of the most familiar and yet richest, richest truths of all of Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. About 55 years ago or so, Johnny Erickson Tata was a 17-year-old girl who was out on a raft in the Chesapeake Bay, and she was attempting a dive that she had probably attempted many, many times before. She had dreams of being an athlete. She had so much to live for. And she took a dive that day, and something terrible happened. Because the water was hard to see in. And as she dove head first, she hit the bottom of the bay and broke her neck. And instantly as she hit that sandy floor, her arms and her legs went limp. And she recalls thinking to herself, what a stupid dive. I can't believe I did that. What a stupid dive. And pretty soon her paralysis was not just hours, but days. And not just days, but years. And Joni was devastated. She was a believer. She knew Jesus. 
But as she confessed, in those days, Jesus was not the blazing center of her life. In those days, Jesus wasn't central. Jesus was a part of her life, but Jesus was not the main thing. Jesus was hopeful, but not the rock that she built all on. And it was not long before Joni became so depressed that she couldn't even get out of bed. And day after day, she didn't want to look at herself because she couldn't move from the neck down. And she tried everything to get better and to no avail. And she would learn that there are more important things than in life than even the ability to walk. She would, she would confess, I wanted to walk so bad. I wanted to walk on my own two legs so bad. But Jesus was teaching me there were more important things than walking. And we live in a world where tragedy and suffering and unexpected accidents totally rock us to the core. We live in a world where people like Joni can get paralyzed for life. But we also live in a world where Romans 8.28 is true. That God works all things together for good. For those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So as we think about these promises that God works all things for good in the lives of believers, I want us to think about this question. What causes somebody like Joni Erickson Tata, a quadriplegic, to say things like, I thank God for my disability. I thank God for the schoolmaster of my wheelchair. That's only possible in a Romans 8.28 world. That's only possible if you actually believe and then begin to see that God works all things for good in the lives of His, His people. Whether in the near future or the far, God is working His purposes out in the lives of His people. And when we get a hold of that, something glorious happens. And sometimes it's the suffering that wakes us up to the glory of the God who is good, who's at work, and able to even use the most terrible thing that happens to you for His good purposes. And if any of you have been saints long enough, you've probably seen it. You never thought that that failure was going to be worked for good in your life. And then God began to use it and it began to shape your life and your ministry for the glory of Christ. You never thought that tragedy that just so rocked you to the core, you would get over. But God began to get a hold of your heart. And you began to sense your need like Joni Erickson Tata who began to get a vision of the world through Romans 8.28. And we sometimes forget the, pr the promise is in the context of all kinds of suffering and difficulty. Verse 18 of this very chapter reminds us, Paul says to, to the Roman Christians, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And we spent a few weeks showing how we live in a world of sufferings. We live in a world where futility is going on. There's, there's frustrations. We're groaning as we struggle in this world that's, that's fallen and has been corrupted by sin. And we sense something's wrong. And that's why these tragic accidents and things that happen and even disease and suffering and death are great reminders that all is not right in the world. But we're not left as Christians without 
hope in this world. We're not left like the rest of the world who does not have the hope of Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Sometimes we hear that and we may be in the midst and throes of suffering and it does not taste sweet to us yet. And there was a time Joni did not taste the sweetness of that promise. And then there was a day it began to rescue her because she saw even the dark threads were weaved for her good by the glorious, gracious weaver of all things for the good of His people. She began to see God as sovereign over it all, over her suffering and over her joy and trying and seeking, not trying, but actually seeking to bring about glorious good in the lives of His people. So that's the aim of this sermon. I want us to, I want us to begin to swim in the world of Romans 8.28. I don't just want us to, 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 to be like a nice thing to put on cards, but as we live it, we get, we get strength. As we begin to believe it, it's one of the privileges and promises of the Gospel. It's what Jesus went to a cross to purchase for you and for I. Verse 32 of Romans says, He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. How shall He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If God's willing to give Jesus up to a cross, you better believe He's willing to give you everything you need in this world to make much of Jesus and to glory in Jesus and to become like Jesus. So we're going to stand on this mountain today and we're going we're gonna to hike up and we're going to look and we're going to behold glorious, amazing things from this text. And we see it bookended by real life. Suffering in verse 18, verse 35. We read that earlier, right? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation... Shall distress, shall persecution, shall famine, shall nakedness, shall danger, shall sword. None of these things shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And what this did for the early church is what it is meant to do for you and I today. It was bedrock truth. It was glorious, gospel-mobilizing, spirit-emboldening reality. And it's what sent Christians all over. They faced persecution and the gospel just spread. You couldn't stop the gospel by beheading them, by imprisoning them, by doing all sorts of things to do violence on the church because nothing can stop the Christian, not even death, because of these promises. And so when we really understand and we get inside this text and we get up in this world and we get, begin to breathe its air, it just totally transforms the way we think and the way we see life. And that's why Joni could be totally paralyzed in a wheelchair. And she, she went through horrible suffering. But she had some of the sweetest joy and continues to have some of the most glorious witness to the intimacy and blessing that Jesus brings when He molds and shapes you to become more like Jesus through this glorious, sovereign, God's in control of it all,
kind of work going on in our lives. So we're going to step into this world and we're going to get a little roadmap. I don't know how far we'll get today, but ultimately the things we're going to see is we're going to see one glorious promise. God works all things for good. One important requirement. This is for Christians. This is a promise for believers. And one good purpose. It's meant to bring about conformity to the image of Christ. And let's look at the text. And I'm going to show it to you right there in the text. And we'll look, that, look at that one by one. Romans 8, 28. And we'll take 29 as well. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. And the first thing we see is how massive of a promise this is that God is working on your behalf. If you're a follower of Jesus, He's working in all things for your good. Everything in your life. Everything. All the suffering. All the trials. All the difficulties. All the mountaintop heights. And all the deep valleys. He's in it all. And He's working it for your good. And notice the words, and we know. This is something like the early Christians just knew and understood. It was a staple that God is in control and He's good. And you put those two things together and He's working for your good in all things. Even in the midst of dark times and the dark night of the soul, He will bring you through it. What is the promise of Psalm 23? That even in the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil, for you are with me, Lord. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So this is, this is a promise for believers to have an unshakable confidence in God and not their circumstances. You look at your circumstances and you start to falter. What did Peter do as he got out of the boat and he looked at the storm and he begins to sink? He looks at Jesus and he's walking on water. This is a promise that's meant to fix our eyes on the greatness of God and the glory of God and the, the worth of God that stands underneath of it. Because all great promises display a great God underneath them. Holding them up. Bringing them true. Working them in your life. So perhaps you walk in here today and you're dealing with depression. You're dealing with discouragement. You're dealing with hard times on the home front. You're dealing with marital strife. You're dealing with one child who's, who's just abandoned the faith. You're dealing with dehabilitating health Issues that will not go away and will not relent and seem like they're going to be around this side of heaven. Well, this promise is for you, dear Christian. If this is for you. Struggling moms, this is for you. Fathers who feel like you've failed so many times that you can't get legs on this thing you call leading a family. Because you feel like you're buckling every time difficulty comes. And this, this message, this promise is meant to put steel in your legs so you'll stand on these promises. And you'll be able to say, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And what does Paul mean when he says all things? He means all things. 
What does the Greek say? It says all things. That means everything. That means cancer and coronavirus can even be worked by our sovereign God for good. That means diving accidents and diverticulitis can be worked for good in your life by our sovereign God. That means persecution and pain. That means cancer and car accidents. And that means disabilities and despairs can be worked in and through for good by our sovereign God. There's nothing that this promise doesn't touch. But what the text isn't saying is that what often can be misunderstood is it's not saying everything is good. It's not saying like the Lego cartoon, everything is awesome, everything is cool, you know, everything's great. Cancer is not good, it's evil. Right? Diving accidents where you break your neck and you're a quadriplegic, it's not a good thing. That's bad. But God can work it for good. And we're going to see a, a, a few examples from Scripture how this is so because the, the all things is meant to encourage you that all of the context of this passage from suffering to persecution to nakedness being just totally impoverished. You feel like I've got money issues. Well, God can work in that. Or even death itself. For the Christian, death brings you instantly into the presence of Christ. Death brings you into the presence where every tear wiped away, all your suffering is gone, and you await a new body and a new heaven and a new earth. Even death can be worked for good for the Christian. But is this... Is this just one place in Scripture or is it all over Scripture? Is this one witness or is this the constant witness of the Bible? Let me just put before you a few things. Consider the life of Joseph. When you look at the life of Joseph, you cannot help but see Romans 8.28 writ large over it. Joseph is the favored brother. He gets the coat of many colors. He's... He's the one who's bragged about and doted on by the father and all his brothers hate him and they conspire against him. And the first chance they get, they throw him into a pit. And if that's not enough, they take him out of the pit and they sell him into slavery. And then he ends up being sold to a man named Potiphar and he's in Potiphar's house serving him and things to be seem to be going well and he seems to be blessed and then all of a sudden he's lied about and slandered and gets thrown into prison and he languishes in prison for years and then he interprets some dreams of a baker and a butler and he tells them what's going to happen and the baker is beheaded and the butler is restored to his position or the cupbearer is restored to his position, and he promised that he would tell Pharaoh about Joseph, and he forgets, and Joseph is in prison longer. And you just look at his life, and it's up and down, up and down. Things are just looking terrible, but God is blessing. Things are looking terrible again, but God is blessing, and it's a seesaw. But God is up to something good through it all. Because at the right time, in the right moment, the butler remembers there's this Hebrew that knows how to interpret dreams. And he tells Pharaoh, who's having some weird dreams of his own, and he calls upon Joseph, and Joseph interprets the dream, and God takes Joseph from a pit to slavery, to a dungeon prison, to ascend to be number two over all of Egypt, where he's in a position to save his people from a famine that would come. 
And as his brothers find out, they're scared to death that Joseph might do something crazy, that he might get vengeance. And listen to Joseph's response to them of how he sees it. Genesis 50 and verse 19. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You want to know what? God took the one action of his brothers selling him into slavery. That's evil. That's wicked. That's sinful. God took their evil intentions and he had a good intention for it. You want to see how God can use bad, evil, sinful things for his glorious purposes? I give you Joseph. The power of God manifest in his life to raise him up to be ruler in Israel or in Egypt to save his people and preserve the messianic line. And nobody gets saved in this world apart from that reality. Unless Joseph is saved, unless his family is saved, the Messiah does not come through Judah. Do you see the, the, the powerful, glorious promises of Romans 8, 28? just written over the life of Joseph and written over the lives of anybody else who puts their trust in Jesus. Because Jesus would come because God is in the business of taking sinful, wicked choices and, and, and terrible circumstances and working them for His glorious good purposes. What God meant for good, even what the brothers meant for evil, God meant for good. What do you think about the crucifixion of Christ? Is this, sometimes we don't think about this, but the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is a beautiful picture of this. What happens in the crucifixion is Herod and Pilate and the Jewish authorities are all seeking to bring Jesus to the cross. They're all sinning in different ways and doing wicked, evil actions. But God is up to something good. God is up to something glorious. The murder and crucifixion of Jesus must be the most wicked evil on the whole of human history. And God used it for the greatest good in redeeming a people unto himself from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Listen to how the early church saw this in Acts chapter 4 and verse 24. As they prayed for boldness when they were facing persecution. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what? To do whatever your hand and plan had predestined to take place. It was God's sovereign plan and design to do it that way. And He's able to use... A, hundreds of wicked choices and work all of that out and, and, and work in that to bring about the redemption of a people. Jesus must go to the cross. And God is behind all of it. And His intentions are ultimately good even when peoples are wicked. Is this not the beauty and the glory of Romans 8.28? If he can do it in Joseph's life, if he can do it in the lives of people like Job, who in one day and 24 hours lose his livelihood, his, his, his family, and all of his possessions in 24 hours. And the book of Job ends with God giving Job twofold everything he lost. And Job, blessing God, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And Job ends up in a better place than he started, but he was taken through the school of suffering to see the glory of a sovereign God able to work in and through the book of Job to encourage you and I when we go through suffering and it seems so unfair. And why is this happening to me? But God is after something good in your life. Even when you don't feel it. Job was righteous and he feared God, but he still suffered. And Romans 8 is all about what Paul, inspired by the Spirit, wrote to Christians to remind them, though you're going through unspeakable suffering, please know that you're on a path that leads to glorious, unutterable, unspeakable goodness and will terminate and you becoming like Jesus. And there's no greater thing that can happen to you in life. That's why one writer said, nothing is beyond the overruling, overriding scope of God's providential care over our lives. Nothing's outside of His good and gracious care for you. Even the hardest and harshest realities. It's God still cares. You might feel like he doesn't care, but he cares. And he's put, the re, he's, he's put in human history and recorded, recorded it for us in the scriptures that we might know this is how God works. He works in all things for good in the lives of his people. And that's a great help to us. What's the second thing we see? Point number two. The qualification is that the promise really only belongs to believers. And you see that right there in verse 28. This is a promise that doesn't automatically apply to everybody. Sometimes people quote eight, Romans 8.28 and they're not believers. And they'll say things like, hey, it'll all work out in the end. Don't worry. Be happy, right, Bob Marley? Don't worry. Be happy. Everything's going to work out in the end. Well, that's demonstrably not true for the unbeliever. If you end up in hell under the judgment of God, under the curse, things are not working for your good. They're going very badly and they end in the most horrible place. But Jesus holds out for all believers and all who would believe this glorious hope. Look at it in verse 28. It's right there. You're going to see two qualifiers. And we know that for one, number one, for those who love God, all things work together for good. And then number two, for those who are called according to his purpose. You've got to be one of those who love God and only believers love God. And you've got to be called according to his purpose. It's a special, unique call. So let's just look at those two things one at a time. And that might be all we have time for. Clue number one, the promise is for those who love God. It's for those who love God. So ask yourself, is there love for God in my life? Is there love bubbling up in my heart for the Lord Jesus? Is there a sense in which we can identify with Joni Erickson Tata who, who said, Jesus was not the center of my life. When I broke my neck, Jesus wasn't the center. Jesus wasn't the one that I adored above all. And this passage is reminding us that this promise is for those who love God and those who have hearts that treasure God. Love is the expression of the faith that we have in God. Faith is working itself out in love in our life. Love for God and love for others. What's the greatest two commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. You've got to have the vertical love before anything horizontal is going to be happening. And you've got to have the vertical love or these promises are not ours. Because we're not regenerate. But if we belong to God, 
We're not hostile like the unbeliever in, in Romans 8, 7. When it says the unbeliever is hostile to God and it does not submit to God, or he does not submit to God. But the believer has an adoration of God. Let me ask you, is there a deep heart affection for the Lord in your life? I was struck by this uh, watching The Fiddler on the Roof. And it's a story about a Jew in uh, sort of Marxist Russia and, and, and Orthodox Judaism is beginning to sort of disintegrate in light of all the new ideas that are coming in. And the main character's name is Rev Tevya. And he's watching all his daughters sort of get enamored with the, the new ways of the world. And they start falling in love. And, and he begins to kind of see them having these romantic sort of situations. And then one day he kind of turns to his wife and he sings it. I'm not going to sing it for you, but he says, do you love me? Do you love me, Golda? And she said, yes, I, I cook for you. I clean for you. I, I do the dishes for you. I do all of these things. What are you asking me for? You know, and they kind of have a sort of give and take relationship. And he said, yeah, yeah yes, but do you love me? Well, yes. Uh, I mean, I, I cook for you. I clean for you and I do all these things for you. Isn't that enough? And Tevya was getting at something. That it's not just all the stuff that you claim to do, but if there's not something underneath that, if there's not a love that that's springing forth from, if there's not a deep affection in the heart that, that, that those good things are flowing out of, that's what Tevye was after. That's what he was asking. Do you really love me? Do you really love me in those kind of ways? Do you really have heart affections for me? And that's what this passage is asking. Do you love the Father? Do you love God? Do you long for Him? Do you delight in Him? Do you rejoice over Him? Is He sweet to you? Do you love Him? And for the Christian, the closer you get to Jesus the more you emphatically answer that question. The more suffering he brings you through, the more emphatic you ask that question, or you, you answer that question, absolutely I love the Lord. Absolutely. How many of us learn when everything is going well, how many of us learn the most? It's through our suffering that we learn. It's through the school of hard knocks. It's through the difficulties. It's then when you've got to rely on the God who promises to be working for you in all things for your good and you fall in love with Him all over again. And again and again and again as He keeps showing up in your life. When you cry out, when you come to the throne of grace and you're like, help me Lord. And He shows up and then you love Him more. Because you see that he was willing to give Jesus. And if he didn't spare Jesus, what else is he not going to do for you? Second John 1 John 1.6 says, and this is love. That we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that you have heard from the beginning. And so that you should walk in it. Love is the prerequisite for all the glorious good things we do for the Lord. And it is the thing that gets produced in your soul when you're born again. And you may just have a little kernel of that going. You love God, but it's hard right now. You're suffering, you're discouraged, you're beat down. You love God, but it, doesn't, it just feels like an ember and it's about ready to be put out and you need to fan the flame of Romans 8 all over it and watch it kindle again and rekindle your love for God. Unbelievers have no love for God, but if you've got an ember going, fan the flame with the Word of God. And I don't want you to think, oh, here's what I need to do. I need to love God harder and then he'll bless me more. I need to love God harder. And you start turning love into this kind of like I'm going to manipulate God with love. It's a love that flows out of trust. 
It's a love that flows out of, I'm trusting God, I love him, and I'm going to live for him. I'm not trying to earn it. I'm not trying to earn heaven because I can't. Everything I have is Christ, right? Jesus is my life. When all around my soul gives way, Christ is all my hope and stay. Second clue. This promise is for those who are called according to the purpose of God. They're called according to the purpose of God. You see it right there at the end of verse 28. For those who are called according to the purpose of God. So underneath the promise or underneath the prerequisite of loving God, you have this calling who've been called according to the purpose of God. So those two things are true of every believer. You're those who love God and you've been called in a unique way. You've been called by a sovereign God who's working his redemptive purposes out in your life. And you did not choose him. He chose you. Right? Many are called, but few are chosen. So we need to get some handles around this because there's different types of calling in the Bible. There's the general call of the gospel that we preach the gospel to the nations, right? We preach the gospel to all the nations. Every ear needs to hear. That's what we do when we give people Bibles or that's what we do when we preach. When I'm preaching right now, that's a general call that's going out. Listen to it here in Jesus' words from Matthew twenty-two fourteen: For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called by the gospel. Romans 10, 13 says the same thing. Paul speaks of the importance of the gospel being preached. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless somebody's sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But not all have obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah the prophet says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So notice a couple things about this general call that goes out to everybody. No one will believe unless they hear the gospel. It has to be articulated. It has to be articulated. It has to be read. It has to be heard. It has to be listened to. And nobody will hear it unless it's proclaimed. And that's what we do every Sunday. That's what we do in missions. That's what we do when we send missionaries overseas. That's what we're about in community nights. And the last thing we see is not everybody obeys. Not everybody hears the gospel and responds to it in faith. So that's the gospel that goes out. And it's a call to everyone. And then there's a specific, special call. It's the calling of this passage. It's those who have been called according to the purpose of God. It's those who Romans 1.7 says, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. It's a calling that produces something. It's a calling that calls forth something. It's a calling that affects something. It's a calling that transforms you. It's a calling that makes you born again. It's a calling that penetrates the heart, opens the eyes. As Paul said, ultimately what happens and, and how the veil is taken off people's eyes is the light of the gospel shines forth and God says, let there be light and light shines on the heart. When we studied Acts 16, Paul went down to a river and he talked to a group of women who were praying and who was saved but Lydia. And the Bible says that God opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was saying and believe it. Many women heard the gospel that day, but only Lydia believed. Her eyes were open. Her heart was gripped. 
There was a calling happening. She was being summoned out of darkness into the glorious light of God. Look at verse 30 of Romans 8. It says the same thing. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see that you can't break that chain? It starts with predestination and it moves to calling and it moves to justification and it goes on to glorification and you can't break it. What God has begun, He will complete. So this special particular call of God on the people of God is what keeps you in the world of Romans 8.28. It's what means that He's never going to lose anybody. He's never going to lose anybody who trusts Him. He's never going to lose anybody if they're going through suffering. He's never going to lose you and He's going to let nothing separate you from His love. That's what this calling means in the hearts of God's people. It's a calling that produces love for God and a steadfastness in keeping you with God to the end. It's a persevering call on our lives. And we're going to have to save the last point, but I'll briefly share it with you for next week. This work of God in Romans 8.28, this good work that God is doing in us is unfolded to us in its goal in the lives of believers in the very next verse. Look at Romans 8.29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So God means to shape you in all of these ways, in all the good things he's doing in your life, in all the ways he's using your suffering and your discouragement and your hardships for good. He's working in all of those to make you more like Jesus. He's working in all of those so that you would image bear in a way that reflects Jesus and reflects God to the world around you. He's making you into something glorious. And one day it's going to be consummated and you'll be glorified and you'll be like Jesus and every tear will be wiped away and all suffering will be no more. It'll be in the rear view of your life. Oh, we've got glorious things in store for us as the people of God. But what are the implications? What are the implications for what we've seen? What are the implications that should flow out of our hearts as we hear these promises, as we behold this great God who's working in these ways? We should be filled with an unspeakable gratitude. We should just be grateful that God is working in our lives. He's working in our failures as a father or a mother for His glorious good. He's working... In your health difficulties. He's working. In your most painful life circumstances. For good. And even when you don't feel it. And let me close where I began with the life. Of Johnny Erickson Tata. Who reminds us that we can thank God in all circumstances. She was a quadriplegic at 17, a normal body and follower of Jesus and paralyzed after a diving accident. And listen to her words. Listen to what she says. This is her 55 years later after that accident, only being able to move her mouth and read books with a pick in her mouth and can't use her arms and legs. And here... This precious sister in the Lord speak of, of these realities. When a broken neck upended my life 55 years ago, leaving me depressed and devastated, the last people I wanted to be around were people in wheelchairs like me. They made me feel awkward. So I basically ignored anyone with a disabling condition. And imagine my amazement when a little... Over a decade later, God used my own affliction to birth 
an international disability ministry. Somewhere within that decade, I rose above my fears of the future and my disdain for others with disabilities. God transformed my heart and He changed my attitude and He showed me there's more important things in life than walking. Oh, only Romans 8.28 can do that in our lives. And Joni gets right to the heart of the good work God's doing in all things as she describes this unfolding in her life. So for the last 50 years in my wheelchair, I've been daily dying to self and rising with Jesus. Dying to self and rising with Jesus. Dying to self and rising with Jesus. And my goal is to kill my fleshly desires so that I might find myself in Christ. God has been answering my prayer, exposing dark things in my heart and things which I needed to be healed of. Does God miraculously heal? Sure, He does. But in this broken world, it's still an exception, not the rule. And no answer to my request for a miraculous healing was, to, or, or, was answered. Instead, it meant that I was purged of sin and given a love for the lost and an increased compassion and a stretched out hope and an appetite for grace and an increased faith and a happy longing for heaven and a desire to serve and a delight in prayer and a hunger for the Word of God. Oh, bless the stern schoolmaster that is my wheelchair. It's all to the praise of deeper healing in Christ. Beloved, God works in mysterious ways His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps on the sea and rides upon the storm. And ultimately, He's at work in our lives for good. And when you look at Joni's life, you just add her to the testimony of all the saints of Scripture that God is at work. And we can praise God for it and thank Him. And when that cloud is over your head, please know one day sunshine's coming. One day sunshine's coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious passage. There's so many riches in it. There's so many wonders in it. And Father, I pray that you would stab awake our hearts to its truths and that Joni's life would be just one more testimony in the chorus of people singing the symphony of your glorious sovereign work for our good in everything that we go through. And Father, if there's some in here that haven't tasted that, if there's some in here that are outside those promises, I pray that they would come to you now, that they would be crying out in their hearts, that is something I need. That they would be crying out in their souls, Jesus, please save me from my sins. Please be sweet to me. Please get me in touch with these promises. Please rescue me from my sins. And Lord, I pray that you would work repentance, that you would work that glorious call on their lives, that they may drink it in. And for those of us who savor the glorious truths of Romans 8.28, may we be filled with gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.